There you go. Um, tonight, I want to talk to you guys about, start off with the Great Commission, but talking about a battle plan. Um, Sunday, we rolled out the prophetic bulletin and kind of threw a lot of stuff at you. And so I like to always be practical whenever I teach and preach. So, you know, it's always that question, and how then shall we live, right? So you hear all this information, and then the question should always be on our heart. So how do we live that? How do we walk that out? So hopefully tonight's teaching will be uh, very practical for you. Um, if you have your Bibles, or actually if you have the handout, I give you a handout tonight with the first scripture is Matthew 28. And uh, we all know this one. Hopefully you know it by heart. But it's the Great Commission, right? And this is Jesus talking, and he says, uh, Then the 11, uh, 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Um, this is our marching orders, isn't it? This is our mission statement as a church, as Christians, as believers. We're to go into the whole world and make disciples. And the important part is teaching them to obey. And so we know in the end times there's going to be sheep nations and goat nations, right? God is coming to judge the nations. And so what do you think our nation is going to be judged as? A sheep nation or a goat nation? You know, if you would ask me this question probably 20, 30 years ago, without hesitation, I would say, a sheep nation. But the longer I live and the more things I see happening, the more I'm fearful that we could possibly be judged as a goat nation, right? And we have to ask ourselves, in the continuum of time, how do we think Christianity is faring? How do we think we're impacting the world? Is our impact as great as it was in the beginning, or are we losing our grip on society? Um, you know, I don't want to sound pe pessimistic because I consider myself a realist, but I know to an optimist I probably sound pessimistic, but things have definitely eroded on our watch. Amen? So I think that we really need to have some way to battle back, some way to make sure that we're influencing the world and impacting the world with the faith that we profess to believe in. Since this command to go and make disciples was issued to the church, I think we've been at war ever since, haven't we? And the early church has done a good job of advancing the gospel. When you consider just 12 men started you know, to evangelize the world and, and the spread of Christianity, but again, when you look at it in today's terms, you have to wonder, is it going to continue to grow at the rate it grew at? Um, when I spoke on Sunday with the 2015 Prophetic Bulletin, I was using statements like prepare, armor up, winds of change. And so hopefully you guys are excited. Hopefully you have anticipation in your, in your spirits that God is about to do something this year like never before. And our prophetic team really has that sense. But the thing is, it's probably not going to be easy. But you know what? Anything worth having isn't usually easy, is it? It's usually something that you have to struggle for. So even though we have to armor up, even though we have to prepare, good things are in store, I really believe. 
But on every level, every single level that we look at, we're under attack. Last week when Pastor Tim was doing his teaching, I don't know if you remember, but he made reference to a book called The Art of War. It was written by Sun Tzu, and it's a treatise on military strategy. Um, You know, it's just philosophies and proverbs and strategic thinking that really characterizes the greatest thinkers in military battle. And so it's been used throughout the ages by, by generals and tacticians to understand the maneuvers of war and warfare. We kind of have our own art of war, don't we? We have our rules of engagement. And um, tonight I want to look at a, a very famous battle in the Old Testament. And once again, Israel is battling with the Philistines, right? And uh, whenever you look at these Old Testament battles, they're usually scrapping back and forth, right? The Israelites will win a battle, and then the Philistines win a battle. And it's just a seesaw back and forth battle, isn't it? And this particular battle that I'm referring to takes place between Jonathan, King Saul, his son Jonathan, and um, the Philistines. Jonathan, if you remember, like I said, was Saul's son, and he was also David, King David's best friend. And he was known for his loyalty. But I think when we think of David, we think David as the warrior, and we think of Jonathan as the, the buddy, the friend. But Jonathan, in his very own right, was, was a very brave and courageous warrior. And so I think tonight's lesson um, has some insights for us even today. So 1 Samuel 14 um, I'm not going to read that whole scripture, but I printed it out for you. But basically, just to set it up, um, Saul and the Israelite army was uh, setting up camp to go against the Philistines. And when they were doing that, Saul had a garrison of about 600 soldiers. All right? And, and uh, his son, Jonathan, snuck out of camp. And he goes with his armor bearer to check out the enemy troops. And let's pick up the story here in uh, verse 6. It says, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now, I just love that attitude, you know. And as we were singing tonight, even though we're few tonight, right, there's not many of us here, the Holy Spirit can break in, whether there's many or whether there's few. I don't know about you guys, but some of the most anointed meetings I've ever been to, Bible studies, prayer groups, just times of worship, home groups, have been so powerful and so anointed, even when there's just a handful of people there, right? And sometimes the corporate anointing falls when there's lots of people there. But the thing is, is never judge by the size of who's in your midst, because God can act, God can move, and it's just amazing when he does that. So Jonathan has his attitude. He's not moved by numbers, is he? He says, God can do this no matter what. So picking up, he says, do um, many, uh, I'm sorry, do all you have in mind, his armor bearer said, go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over towards them and let, us see, and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, 
we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. (laughs) Great military strategy there, right? So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes that they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. (laughs) So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into our hands. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer Follow, or, I'm sorry, fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area about half an acre. Now, I don't know about you, but you just can't make these stories up, can you? And it's just amazing to me that Jonathan just decides to go out. He's got 600 soldiers at his disposal, but he just goes to... Uh, check on the enemy, and he looks up there and he says to his armor bearer, let's, let's have some fun. Let's, let's check out what God's about to do here. And so he issues that, that fleece, doesn't he? He says, if they say to us, if we show ourselves and they say to us, stay right there, we'll come down to you, we'll stay put. Because you know what? He knew he had 600 guys within shouting distance. But then he says, but if they say, come up here, and you've got to imagine, this is a huge cliff that the Philistine army was up on. So Jonathan already blows the first military advantage, which is the element of surprise, right? Any good general, any good soldier understands that a sneak attack is usually the most effective engagement of the enemy. So here he is standing, hey, guys, look, down here, here I am. And they say, come up here. So now, all of a sudden, he's climbing, and it says he's climbing on his hands and knees. What does that indicate? It's really steep, right? They didn't just walk up that hill. They were climbing on their hands and knees. And so, second disadvantage militarily, uh, position, right? You always want to be in the high place, not in the low place. Here they are in the low place, going towards the high place. So, sounds like a pretty ill-fated move. But when they get to the top of the hill, what happens? They kill 20 men instantly. And I don't know about you, but if I had to climb that steep embankment, by the time I got to the top, I'd probably be puffing and panting so bad that I'd be easy prey. But not Jonathan, and not his armor bearer. I love his armor bearer's attitude, don't you? He says, do whatever you got in mind to do, and I'm right with you. That's one loyal armor bearer. So... How, once again, can we take the land? How can we have a modern-day strategy to do what God has called us to do? There's a, there's a theory out there right now in church circles called the Seven Mount Mandate. I don't know, has anybody heard of the Seven Mount Mandate before? A couple of you? Okay. Um, basically, what what this is, is in the year 2000, uh, two Christian leaders, Bill Bright from Campus Crusades, many of you have heard of Campus Crusades, and Lauren Cunningham, uh, the director and founder of YWAM, were going to have a meeting. And on their way to the meeting, they both were praying to the Lord, Lord, 
show me something to tell the other guy. Well, as they were heading towards this meeting for each other, the Lord simultaneously downloaded to both Bill Bright and Lauren Cunningham a strategy that could be employed today to engage the enemy and to take back the land. And it became popularized as the Seven Mountain Strategy or Seven Mountain Mandate. But these are seven molders or influences of our culture. And so they basically came up with religion, which is the impetus mountain. So what they said is picture each one of these as a mountain that we face in society. So religion being the impetus or the driving force. Okay, that's what impetus means. Number two, the family mountain. That's the mountain where values are housed and contained. Number three, the education or equipping mountain. Number four, the government mountain or the empowering mountain. Five is the business mountain. Six is arts and entertainment, which is a prophetic mountain. And number seven is the media mountain or also known as the watchman mountain. So what does that mean practically? Well, it means that in any society, any culture, any nation, these spheres of influence are what dictates the minds and ideas and thoughts of a society. And so whoever rules these high places, whoever rules these mountains, is able to take and rule over that geographical location. Okay? may sound rather simplistic, and you may say, well, I can think of mountain number eight, or I can think of ten mountains. doesn't matter. The main thing is, is can we agree that these seven are definitely influence centers? And um, if we could all agree on a strategy, things could begin to really move. So the, the first one, the religion mountain, I just want to say that because it's the impetus, it's become the most attacked mountain, hasn't it? As far as religion goes, it's no longer the driving force in so many of our lives or in the lives of our families or, or those that we work with, those that we go to school with, because religion has been relegated to the back seat, isn't it? I like in the story, what did it say about the Israelites? They were hiding in holes. And isn't that kind of where we're at right now? Whenever a Christian tries to stand up and make a stand for Christ, we're told to get back in our hole, aren't we? We're told to go back into hiding. We don't want to see you. We don't want to hear from you. And so I think it's interesting, that story, that's how they characterize the Israelites, these people who are hiding out in holes. But I remember a time when the religion mountain really was the impetus, and it mattered what the church thought. It mattered what your priest thought or your pastor thought, didn't it? Because you didn't want to go up against the religion mountain because that was the mountain that represented God. And uh, so many things have changed. I remember even as a kid, uh, nobody would dare think of breaking into a church. And churches suffer break-ins all the time. And I just can't believe when I hear about it, because uh, who would want to steal from God? But there's no regard, there's no respect for that religious mountain anymore. Uh, Number two, the, the family mountain, or the values mountain, This one really, in our lifetime, on our watch, has become under so much attack. I mean, it's just simultaneous how three things have really been uh, torpedoed. Number one, marriage, right? Because of divorce. Divorce has run rampant, not just in the secular realm, but also in, in the Christian realm, in the church realm. 
divorce is out of control. And, um, you know, people used to care what the church thought about divorce. And now people just throw away marriages. They're, they're just so disposable. It's no wonder to me why divorce and marriage is under such attack because what happens at the end of the age? There's going to be a wedding, isn't there? There's going to be a marriage between, you know, the, the bride of Christ and the lamb. And so what does the enemy want to do? He wants to taint the institution of marriage. He wants us to become so cynical that marriage has no more meaning. And so what God chose to be the greatest symbol at the end of the age, the enemy has defiled, hasn't he? Um, Gay marriage, another way that marriage is becoming marginalized and mocked. It's almost become a mockery now. Um, Abortion, that's another attack on the values, isn't it? Because the value of life. We no longer value life, and children are part of the family. They're a vital part of that family mountain. Third, the education mountain, or the equipping mountain. Again, our schools used to be controlled by biblical precepts and biblical education, and no longer is the case. Secular humanism has just infiltrated every nook and cranny of of the school. Prayer has been kicked out of schools, and our schools are barely recognizable. And especially in America, we slipped from being the premier education system all the way to one that, that is substandard according to the world's standards anymore. Isn't that true? And it's all because we've kicked God out of our schools. Don't worry, guys. i got good news. This isn't all going to be totally bad news. But, you know, if you're a teacher here tonight, I, I know that you probably have seen this, you know, during your tenure. The government mountain which is the empowering mountain. The government should be here to empower us, to support us, to, to help us to better navigate as a society. But what's happened to the government mountain? It's made us dependents, hasn't it? It's caused us to all need the government. Exactly, someone just said, it's become our God, hasn't it? And we expect the government to take care of the widows and the orphans. Whose job is it to take care of the widows and the orphans? It's the church's job, right? but we keep relegating things to the government. I just read recently that right now, 43% of the population is contributing to um, the welfare system, and 43% basically are working. The, The greater percentage is not working, which is pretty scary when you think of it, 47% not working. And they said that statistic by the end of 2015 beginning in 2016, would probably be 41%. The problem is, is we can't sustain that much longer, can we? When you got more people out of work and living off the system than are contributing to the system, guess what? There's a mismatch there. It's going to die under its own weight, isn't it? I heard a a term, I've never heard the term before, but the the new term going around is it's an ineptocracy. And what an ineptocracy is when you have more people in the wagon than that are pulling the wagon, right? It's inept. It, it can't continue that way. Um, the business mountain um, used to be godly businessmen and godly principles and, and values running businesses, but now greed is, is the moral code of most businesses, and so we need to recover that as well. Arts and entertainment, um, Many of us realize how prophetic Hollywood is. It's amazing, isn't it? You'll see these movies come out, and then six months after the movie comes out, what happens? The real thing happens 
in the world, right? Even technology, things that you see in the movies, all of a sudden begin showing up at the stores. It's amazing how prophetic Hollywood is. Um, but also, it's the arts and entertainment that, that begin to shape the minds of, of future generations. I, I tried to watch the Grammy Awards the other night. I really like music, but I'll tell you what, I turned it on three times and immediately, immediately, I mean, I didn't even watch like a minute, and I'm like, I can't watch this because it was so evil and it was so upsetting, and, and uh, I just couldn't believe my eyes. And I said, I'm just not going to watch that, and I don't want uh, to, to contribute to this one bit. And uh, it's really sad when you see that happening. And you know what? Um, you don't realize how orchestrated and how, how directed this whole thing is through the arts and entertainment, how evil the agenda is. About five years ago, I had the opportunity to meet a, a marketing genius, uh, one of the smartest men I know when it comes to marketing. And uh, his name is Gordon Pennington. And he is uh, regarded in the marketing circles as uh, a highly desired consultant. He was the vice president of Tommy Hilfiger. Um, he did a lot of consulting work for Apple computers. And uh, he has just a huge list of clients. And uh, because he was in such demand, uh, Gordon grew up as, as a fundamentalist Christian. And when he went to college, he lost his faith. He got caught up in the world of drugs and alcohol and uh, fast living. And he wanted everything he could get out of life. And he became instantly successful. He became uh, a millionaire. And he started living the life. But you know what? He was just empty inside. And finally, one day, MTV approached him. And this is back in the late 80s, early 90s. And MTV approached him and asked if he would come on board and head up all their media and marketing. And as they were courting him, they said, we want to share something with you that is for your eyes only. And they gave him a copy of their 10-year plan, MTV's 10-year plan, to overtake a generation. And when Gordon read this plan, and he saw how deliberate and how calculated and how evil this blueprint was to take over a generation, he was shook to his core. And he immediately realized that was the system that he was living in. That's the system that he bought into. That was the system that he had helped create and he was part of. And all of a sudden, his Christian, his Christian roots kicked back in. And all of a sudden, he came back to the Lord. And now he's dedicated his life to trying to become uh, an expert to the churches to help the churches to get back on track and to fight these evil agendas that we're up against today. And the thing that's most disconcerting to Gordon was the people who make these decisions, who make these calls, who are influencing our children in this next generation are probably less than 6% of the business population. That is scary when you think about it. But they understand one thing, a tipping point on anything is 6%. Once you get to 6%, you can overturn anything. And these guys know that. And so Gordon has been working with uh, a lot of Christian think tanks to try to turn this whole thing around. Um, and then the last one is the media, the media mountain. And many of you know what's going on in the media mountain right now, uh, the whole Brian Williams thing that just came up, right? 
uh, our media is supposed to be the watchman. And we've seen in the last probably five to ten years how the media has totally fell down on the job. They used to be the watchdogs. They used to be the ones that would blow the whistle on all the corruption and the things that were happening, whether it be in the government or uh, you know, in the business mountain or wherever. They were the ones that would hold people accountable and hold them their feet to the fire, and that's not happening anymore. The media is so biased, and, and they're the ones that actually are beginning to control and swing the elections even, aren't they? And so the media is no longer performing their function as a watchman. Now, if you can infiltrate these mountains and get to the top of the mountains, you control that particular branch of influence. And if you can control all of them, you can control that society. And so what we need to do is we need to change this. The other problem is, is we're trying to fight from the religion mountain, aren't we? We all think that because of Christians, we all belong in the religion mountain. So we're all trying to get into full-time ministry. And uh, you know what? We need to stop that. And you know, again, as a church, we really promote the five-fold ministry, right? We need apostles, we need prophets, we need teachers, we need pastors, we need evangelists. And you know what? How we got to the system we have today, the paradigm we have today, I don't know. And I shouldn't be speaking against it because that's the side my bread is buttered on, right? But you know what? I understand the importance. And if we begin to do it God's way, according to the book of Ephesians, we that are on the church mountain, those of us who make our living on this mountain, our job is to equip and train those to go out into these other mountains, these other areas of influence, and begin to take control of those. And once we do, and we have godly leaders on top of each one of these mountains, guess what? We can turn the tide, and we can win the day. Amen? So what if we each began to control the mountain that we've been stationed at, the mountain that we're positioned at? Um, I don't say this to build myself up, but for first 25 years of my career, I worked for General Motors. I was an engineer at the tech center in Warren. And when morale started getting super low and we started having all kinds of problems, I met uh, another gentleman who was extremely prophetic. And uh, we, we started talking. And we just got sick and tired of all the negative and all the criticism, and including ourselves. We were on that same bandwagon. And through a series of lunch meetings, we decided we need to begin to make a difference here. We need to turn the tide. And so we decided to start acting as Christians should in the workplace. So instead of being grumblers and complainers, we decided we're going to start praying. So we started prayer meetings. We started Bible studies. And just me and this one other gentleman went about the Lord's business in our workplace. And it was amazing because, you know what, God was starting to download he was starting to anoint us. Um, my friend, who was extremely prophetic, we would walk down the hall at work, and this guy would just prophetically ambush somebody, you know, and he'd just start telling that person, just start reading that person's mail. And half these people were like, what in the world just happened? And I had the pastor's heart, the pastor's gift, and so I'd pull him into a conference room and explain to him, you know, that was a prophetic word. That was a word from God. You need to pray about that to see if you bear witness to what that man just told you, and if you think any of it's true, we should talk. And then I would just present to them the gospel, 
and try to get them saved and invite them to our, our Bible study. And before you knew it, on each one of our locations in the tech center, each one of the buildings, we began to network together and document where all the Bible studies were and all the prayer meetings were. And then it branched out globally on our corporate website to where it was all over the world. If you were going to Brazil, if you are going to Korea, if you are going to China, you could look up on our webpage where the prayer meetings were, where the Bible studies were. And all of a sudden, people were encouraged. People were um, excited to go to work because all of a sudden, we had a new sense of mission. And no longer was it secular. You know, I go here Monday through Friday, and I wear my secular hat, and I wear my church hat on Sunday because work became our ministry. Work became the mountain that God put us on, and we decided to take that mountain. That was our business mountain, and we wanted to get to the top of it. And so I'm just happy to say that, that we saw so much change. And the amazing thing is how many people we were able to help. And the programs that we were responsible for, we began to pray over key documents. We would bring them into the prayer room, and we would get contracts. We would get favorable launches, and things would just begin to go right on everything we would do because we were praying God's presence, God's hand, be on each and every one of those things. And I'll tell you what, got testimony after testimony of things that happened, and it was just amazing because God started to heal and um, people who were sick, and the company benefited from all these things, right? So instead of sending someone for surgery, they'd come down to a prayer room, and we'd pray God heal them, God would deliver them, and uh, you know they wouldn't miss work. It was just amazing time that we had. And so it's all, all at our disposal. You know, it's things that we can start doing. But some of you might be on the engineering mountain. Some of you might be government workers, so you represent the government mountain. Maybe some of you are in arts and entertainment. Maybe some of you are in the media mountain. But whatever mountain God has you stationed on, your goal, your eyes, your priorities should be set. How do I bring the kingdom to bear wherever I have influence? And it's, it's not too late to start right now. So I just want to encourage you in that. This, by the way, is the strategy of Islam. Islam is sweeping, as you know, the Middle East, Europe, the United Kingdom, Canada, and now it's coming to the U.S., isn't it? And Islam is not just a religion. See, we just consider Christianity a religion, and so we just keep it right here in this little religion box. But Islam affects everything. How they do business, right? Sharia law, their legal system, not just a legal system, but it, it has mandates in it for marriage and family, doesn't it? Sharia law um, has mandates in how you prepare food, right? All their dietary laws are wrapped up in it. Um, it's also morality, education. It governs just every aspect of their lives. And you're starting to see it here. All the banks are becoming Sharia-compliant banks. So they're slowly getting their foot in the door. Um, one, one bit of research that I did gave a key strategy, and they've been doing this successfully. Islam has a three-pronged strategy where they, first of all, infiltrate, then they assimilate, and then they dominate. I'll say that again, they infiltrate. So they come in quietly. They come in under the radar. They come in very respectful of the laws of the land, and they begin to quietly coexist. Then they begin to assimilate. They start building 
population. Remember what I said earlier? You only need 6% for a tipping point, and they know that. So they quietly build community. And you know, you've heard the term population jihad. It's even through um, having high number of births per marriage because they want to start a population jihad where they begin to dominate by sheer numbers by having 10, 15 children per family. And so that's the assimilation phase. And then finally, there's the domination phase. And we saw that even at GM, at our Bible studies. It was amazing to watch because all of a sudden, a Muslim would come in to our Christian Bible study. And they were very respectful. They were like, I'm a student of the Quran, but I also want to be a student of the Bible. Would you guys mind if I sat in and just observed? I promise I won't be any trouble. I just want to... I just want to check this out. I just want to learn. I want to understand your ways. I want to be a better friend to the Christian. And then all of a sudden, two or three of their friends start showing up, right? Then they start to assimilate in our Bible study. Next thing you know, there's more, there's more um, Muslims in our Bible study than there are Christians. It's like, how did that happen? But then when they realize they have that tipping point, then all of a sudden they begin to dominate. We actually had where they were putting death threats on many of our leaders and threatening their families and, and uh, you know, serious offenses where we had to get the police and we had to get security involved because all of a sudden they were in the domination phase. But I don't say that, again, to scare us. What I'm saying is the reality of it, they understand what they have to do to control every sphere of influence. So you know what? They're executing the plan perfectly. They know that they need to infiltrate, and that's what we should be doing. We should be assimilating, and then finally we should be dominating each one of these mountains. And if we could do this on a consistent basis, and if we could systematically do it from country to country to country, all of a sudden we would just have such, such uh, you know, world harmony, world peace, because all of a sudden Christianity would rule the day once again. I want to read the rest of the story to you from 1 Samuel. So after they killed the 20, check this out. It says, then panic struck the whole army. This is talking about the Philistine army. Those in the camp and the field and those in the outposts and the raiding parties. And the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at uh, Gibeah and in Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Saul said, bring the ark of God. And while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priests, withdraw your hand. So all of a sudden, there's earthquake hits, and then Saul hears the rumbling. Saul sees the commotion in the Philistine camp. He sees Philistines running in every direction. He's like, wait a second. That must be some of our guys up there. Check who's missing. And it's his son, Jonathan, and the armor bearer. And all of a sudden, they go up and see the priest. And he says, let us go. Let, us, you know, let the army go. Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all of his men assembled and went to battle. He found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp 
went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved from beyond Beth-Avon. So, can you imagine, can you picture what happened there? They go up there, Saul's army runs up to the top of the cliff, they engage the, the rest of the Philistines in battle, and it said what happened is some of the Israelites who were turncoats, some of the Israelites who were deserters from the Israelite army and had joined the Philistine army, guess what they did? They're like, wait a second, the Israelites, the Hebrews are winning, so I'm going to jump back over on this other side. They were dressed and acting as Philistines and had totally renounced the Israelite army as deserters, and they switched sides, they switched back sides. And then the second thing that happened is in that country of Ephraim, there were a bunch of other Israelites hiding in the hills amongst the Philistines, coexisting with them, and they come out, and what do they do? They start chasing after the Philistines, it says, in hot pursuit, okay? Because all of a sudden, what happened? The tide had turned, hadn't it? And so that was based on the courage of two people, right? Jonathan and his armor bearer started this whole ruckus, didn't they? And so I want to encourage you to find one other person in your workplace, in your school, in your sphere of influence, and partner with that person. You may be a brave person. You might be a person who's full of courage. And look what happened. When they went into that camp, they had a decisive victory. But not only that, they got the Israelites who had switched sides to switch back, and they got the Israelites who were hiding out to come back over to the Israelite camp. Does that sound familiar? Remember we talked about the prodigals that are going to start coming home? What better way to get the prodigals home than to begin to act as a victorious church, as a victorious army? When people see us rise up and take the land, guess what's going to happen? You're going to say, man, I remember when the church used to be vibrant. I remember when the church was truly the army of God. I want back on that side. And those that are hiding out, those who are timid, those who are cowardly, all of a sudden, they're going to come out of the woodwork. And that was our experience, again, talking about GM. When we started taking back that workplace, guess what? All the people who were always criticizing and all those people who were um, slidden, backslidden in their faith started coming to our Bible studies, started coming to our prayer meetings. And those who were too timid to let their faith be known in the workplace, all of a sudden they started showing up at some very public events we started having National Day of Prayer in the, in the auditorium and things like that. And people before who were afraid to be labeled as Christians and show up for these things started showing up because guess what? All of a sudden, we had power, we had influence, and they wanted to be part of that team once again. And so I just want to leave you with that encouragement. If you're a timid type, then find someone who's brave in your workplace and say, I'll come alongside of you. I'll be your armor bearer, right? But if you're the brave one, look for an armor bearer, someone to come alongside of you, to prop you up, to support you, to watch your back. Because when the two of you work together, one can send 1,000 to flight, two 10,000, right? There's power in numbers. And when you start operating in that spirit, all of a sudden, we start taking back these high places. We start taking back these mountains. Amen? Amen. So worship team, if you'd come up. And um, 
I just want to pray for you guys because courage is correct. Um, I'm sorry, courage is contagious, isn't it? When you see someone who is courageous, all of a sudden you say, I want to be like that person. I, you know, that rubs off on people. It empowers them and emboldens them. So let's just pray. If you'd stand up, I just